Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf, and I'm at an undisclosed location in the woods of New Jersey in our third floor sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK, we have David Sanger of the New York Times and Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Somewhere in Virginia, I believe, with her dog, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. And out in California, where it's somewhat earlier while we're uh, <laughs> recording this, uh, we have a bleary-eyed Corey Shockey, who still, <laughs> even bleary-eyed, is more alert and cheerful than the rest of us added up. Um, <laughs> that could just be because it's just been one of those whirlwind periods of news that keeps her stimulated and very excited about leaving the country. Is that it, Corey? <laughs> I'm getting out of the targeting grid before the fun over North Korea starts. <laughs> yeah, what the heck was that about? Mr. <laughs> Sanger, I saw you tweeting away like crazy about this. I, I mean, even I even wrote about this in the pages of the New York Times, David. I'm I insulted that you're only reading my is. tweets. What are, yeah. what are pages? What are, what are pages? <laughs> you know, this, is a re- this was the reverse of the usual nuclear nightmare. This was the nuclear nightmare run in reverse. The usual nuclear, nuclear nightmares that we've had from the Cold War going forward – have been somebody waking up, you know, Bill Perry when he was Undersecretary of Defense in 1979 and saying, uh, sir, this is probably an error, but we see 200 ICBMs coming in from the Soviet Union. Would you like us to wake up the president? And then, of course, they figure out that somebody had put a training tape – this actually happened – into the system and it had shown up in the real early warning system. In this case, there was no fake warning in the military systems of a launch. There was a state that had newly gotten nervous about North Korea, understandably, put in a warning system that goes out to cell phones and everything else. And during a shift change, somebody hits the wrong button. Instead of the send a test message, it's send the real message. And they put them on the same screen, which tells you that something thing isn't quite right in the state of Hawaii. Well, the weather's good. The weather's uh-huh. the weather's good. The thinking the, the let me say the skies were clearer than the thinking of the emergency notification department. But isn't the real issue, Ed, the fact that because Donald Trump is president and because Kim Jong-un is where he is, it seemed plausible. You know, other false alarms may have seemed worrisome, but less plausible. But I suspect a lot of these people thought, nope, the shit has finally hit the fan. Yeah, look, um, I'm just starting to read Daniel Ellsberg's um, book, the sort of work of his life, uh, The Doomsday Machine, which makes the point again and again from probably the most um, 
a qualified person who could make this point, you know, having been at the Rand Corporation in, in the 50s and 60s, uh, that human error, the probability of human error happening at some point in a nuclear exchange occurring because of it is close to 100%. I mean, it's like 0.1% with each occasion, with, with, with each Hawaiian, um, you know, civilian error or each, um, um, you know, 1983 Korean airline um, um, near miss. But if you add up all these tiny possibilities over a period of time, you get to an overwhelming probability that there will be a, a, an accidental nuclear exchange at some point. Now, when the key players are Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, I dread to think what that does to the sort of probability scale. But, you know, he's got a big nuclear button. Um, he's proud of this nuclear button. Congress are sort of thinking, I think, you know, with good intentions, but not much um, sort of practical application, thinking of ways to restrain a president's unilateral ability to order a nuclear strike you know, in the context of Donald Trump, clearly, um, it would be good to have that debate, even if there isn't a really good mechanism for 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 holding a, a man like Trump back. It would be good to have that debate. But now is the time to have it. But, you know, Rosa, it seems to me that even as this happens, even as Trump and Kim bump into each other and the Hawaiians don't seem to have their act together and there's, you know, a high risk of an accident, the the thrust of Trump administration nuclear policy is let's spend more, let's get more, let's have more nuclear weapons. Nuclear is good, uh, which also, by the way, seems to be the thrust of Putin policy. How do you feel about that? <laughs> oh, I just feel great about that. We have to learn to love the bomb, David. Um, no, that that's absolutely right. That the Obama administration um, it, it started off. Uh, suggesting that President Obama wanted to move towards zero. He rather quickly abandoned that uh, by by a, yeah, Obama did not cover himself with glory on this issue either, I should say. You know, he, he quite quickly abandoned that uh, aspiration and instead said, oh, well, let's see if we can get rid of unnecessary nuclear weapons and modernize uh, uh, the aspects of the nuclear force that, that require it to make sure that they basically work better in the theory um, and of course, this 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 piece does make sense. Is that you don't actually need uh, thousands of nuclear weapons, many of which have been sitting there gathering dust. Um, that you maybe could get by with just a few hundred highly functional weapons sufficient to destroy large chunks of uh, the human race. Um, so the Obama administration, um, nonetheless, was focusing on reductions. Um, and on attempting to do the kinds of things that states do when they are trying to get other countries in the world to start thinking about reductions. And, and it was reasonably successful. But Trump, Trump, although, you know, in typical Trump style on the on the campaign trail, he he said various things like, oh, nuclear weapons are the most terrible thing ever. We really need to get rid of them. Uh, he he, he also, knew that because his uncle at MIT, <laughs> who didn't teach anything about right. nuclear, told him that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and he also he also, um, you know, wondered happily about whether there might be times when it was necessary to use them. And, and when he came into office, he, he pretty quickly uh, uh, reversed the Obama era approach and started instead saying, no, we need to get back to developing new types of nuclear weapons, the, the sort of the, the dream or, or perhaps the pipe dream of uh, 
nuclear strategist is always that you're going to get these little teensy-weensy, very tailored nuclear weapons, which won't be scary at all and will just be effective. That you can use on your neighbor's dog without any You can use on negative. your neighbor's dog without, without creating nuclear winter in your entire region. Um, um, so uh, that is where the Trump administration is at in terms of, in terms of nuclear policy in the abstract. I think, I think that those, those somewhat more nuanced debates about, well, if we're going to have any nuclear weapons, how many should we have and what should they be designed to do has obviously been overtaken recently by, by just the fear that uh, uh, a not terribly thoughtful presidential decision will be made about North Korea. And, and, and to me, the scary thing about the Hawaii false alarm uh, is, and that we've talked about this many times before, is, is the fear of unintentional, uh, unplanned escalation, where a false alarm, uh, you know, in the, in the heat of the moment, somebody does decide it's real, and next thing you know, it all becomes real. David, can we go back for a moment to um, this discussion of how Trump is rethinking nuclear weapons a bit because one of the things that sort of got lost in last week's, you know, S-hole and other uh, controversies was the leak of a document that only deep state nerds could love called the Nuclear Posture Review. It's not in final version yet but it seemed to be in pretty final version. The Huffington Post and some others uh, had copies of it. And as you go through it, it had uh, an increased reliance as Rose has just said on these low-yield nuclear weapons which have the problem of sort of blurring what's a conventional weapon and what's a nuclear weapon and making it a little bit easier if you – believe the critics of these uh, to reach for a nuclear weapon. But it had something else which I found more striking and goes to this question of accidental war. It changes if this survives for the final version. It changes the conditions under which we would use a nuclear weapon. So previous presidents have always – they've never signed up to no first use but the conditions under which we would actually first use a nuclear weapon have been pretty limited. Um, this one says if there is a devastating non-nuclear strike on civilian infrastructure in the United States, which basically means a cyber strike that took out you know, the power grid, uh, Ian's studio here, you know, all of the vital infrastructure of the United States. The reason the studio is buried so deeply, David, <laughs> is so that that can't possibly happen. Also, you know, down here in the um, third sub-basement, we're in the third sub-basement because we're sitting on the giant batteries that Ian would power up when the grid goes down so that the last thing that deep state radio nerds would hear would be our analysis of the Armageddon happening above us. <laughs> and that will be some significant comfort to them. Yes, I think. I think. <laughs> and to their dogs down in the silo. But, uh, but what, the, uh, what the posture review did basically was say, in return for a devastating cyber strike, we might use nuclear weapons. Now, this could sound totally crazy to people. But if you also think that we've built up absolutely no deterrent to devastating cyber strikes, maybe saying it explicitly isn't quite as crazy as it sounds and a, a good good subject for um, deep state radio nerds to debate in their um, in their Twitter time. It sounds to me like it's a good reason for deep state radio nerds to immediately get in touch with Rosa and see what kind of silo options she's developed in her side real estate practice. 
Well, of, uh, we're going to be ad- at the end of this. We're going to sort of be advertising Rosa's top ten silo choices of the <laughs> year, and you know it's amazing because her sales in Hawaii have just soared. It's the lava. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the lava tube silo. <laughs> well, okay, so Corey, you know I I love watching the exchanges among our deep state radio nerds on Twitter, um, where <laughs> all of them invariably mention the tiara of optimism. Uh, and now you're going to earn it. What's the good mm-hmm. news in all this? Uh, so the good news in all this is that there was not a ballistic missile headed towards Hawaii. Um, that is good news. That is good news. Uh, the second piece of good news is that despite the false alarm, the president did not swing into action. So that suggests to me that Corey, he was playing golf. Internal to the federal government, though, uh, folks in the Defense Department would have seen that alert and would have made a judgment about its accuracy and decided not to inform the president, which is also a good thing, given that it was false. Uh, The problematic, there are several problematic, oh, I'm sorry, the third thing is, I agree with David Sanger that having the nuclear posture review begin to struggle with what it, uh, what defense wonks called cross-domain deterrence, which is if we are not ourselves going to commit offensive cyber attacks on other countries, how do we establish some modicum of deterrence uh, against cyber attacks on the United States that target infrastructure, that is, that occur in the physical world and cause large-scale civilian casualties. Um, And nuclear uh, deterrence being brought into that realm seems to me not an unreasonable exploration. As somebody who worked in the Bush administration when we were struggling with the problem in 2001 of deterring terrorism, we tried to think about what what are the ways to cross over the line, given that terrorists don't have territory and civilian populations to hold at risk, which is a fundamental element of nuclear deterrence. So I'm not persuaded that that a nuclear threat is the right cross-domain deterrence, but it is right that the Defense Department and the administration writ large is struggling with that question. So, two you know, things Corey, that are Corey, really just worse. to jump in for one second, I, I would I would add that the Obama administration uh, also uh, expressly approved of the idea of cross-domain deterrence for cyber, not not using nuclear weapons, but made it very clear that there was at least in principle a willingness to use conventional military force to respond to a cyber attack. Which, of and course, in action can kill a lot of people too. Of course, in action, that is not actually what happened. Um, uh, you know, no, in action, they did nothing. Yes. Right. Their cross-domain deterrence was strong language. But, you know, this, sometimes, you know, sometimes it was no language whatsoever. <laughs> Wait, can I toss in one more, one more thought on the Hawaii thing? Sure. Because it wasn't just a human error. It was an IT software error as well. Right, having a pull-down menu that has ballistic missile incoming next to let's test the system maximizes the prospect for human error, and it, we shouldn't it, just think of these 
these issues as human error, we need to think about designs for our systems that are more robust than maximizing the likelihood of a mistake like this and taking longer, as David Sanger pointed out on Twitter, taking longer to correct the mistake than an incoming missile from North Korea would take to hit Hawaii. David, what do you, worse, how do you though, read? Right? I mean, the, 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 the menu could have been, you know, uh, you know, the incoming missile alert could have been next to the please order a pizza alert. <laughs> how do we know it wasn't, David? <laughs> well, Guys, we don't. I, I think we should change the subject because my dog is getting a little upset with this, this topic. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm sorry to your dog, to Rosa Brooks's dog. Needs but to it work up lead... to the rest of our level of anxiety about it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it leads to a. Now you're not sounding very Tiara optimistic there, but let's <laughs> let's let's just switch it just a bit, because it does lead to another area where I have been consistently super skeptical, and that is the access of adults. And I've been skeptical about it because I think that you know some of the so-called adults haven't behaved very well. Uh, John Kelly's been an enabler. Certainly Pompeo very quickly revealed himself not to be an adult, but a political enabler. Um, and we've there have been some, by the way, some hidden rifts in this axis of adults. I was speaking to a very, very senior, very experienced um, foreign policy specialist the other day who explained to me in detail the nature of the hatred between Tillerson and McMaster. Um, so there, there are fissures within the, within this axis of adults. Fissures but, within fissures. Exact fissures within fissures. Exactly. But having said that, there does seem to be a pattern here, where the president of the United States says outrageous things about nuclear war, about not wanting to negotiate, about uh, taking money away from the Palestinians, about uh, uh, moving the, the embassy to Jerusalem, about LGBT and the military. And so there's a long list, which don't actually get implemented, that, that don't actually get followed through on by the rest of the government, or the government says, we'll do that later, or it's going to take a long time, or we're going to review it, or it's under postponement. And it does seem like, you know, I don't want to start rumors out there, but it does seem like the president make one set of policies, and the rest of the government <laughs> may make their own, you know, they may, they may be entirely on their own um, wavelength and counteracting the lunacy of the president, which when we talk about nuclear stuff, sounds good. Ed, what do you think of that? I think, uh, I mean, let's pick General Kelly. Kelly's clearly succeeded where Reince Priebus failed in having some kind of order, some kind of schedule in the White House that, that is, you know, an example of an adult um, adult supervision. You mean he he schedules the crazy he schedules. tweets? He's, well, no, that's my that's my point. Is that Trump uh, Trump's response to this is to gradually go along with a, a system where people can't just wander into the Oval Office, um, but he's cut short his day. Uh, so he's he's reduced the number of hours General Kelly can control by turning up, according to Axios. Now at 11 a.m., that's when his first appointment begins. And he often what is, finishes what, what before is Axios? six. Just, what is Axios? Ag I mean, this new thing crops up. Every five minutes, there's some new news organization. I'm not even – is that a real thing? It, 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 is, it is a real, real thing. thing. It's pretty good. It's a blow-away success, in fact. Yes. I, I, and you know, I'm not Mike Allen's biggest fan, but I have to tip my proverbial hat 
um, to to how quickly this this is. Um, taken off, but at any rate, it's it's uh, you, you know a very a very detailed and plausible breakdown of how the president's day has changed since um, since it became more professionalized in order to give Trump more time alone in his bedroom with his three giant TV screens and his you know McDonald's cheeseburger and um, <laughs> and his uh, and his tw- Twitter account. So um, I, I don't think there's any conceivable scenario where a man like Trump can can be controlled um, 24 hours a day. Uh, and, you know, the tweets that he sends out when he's not being controlled and when his reading matter isn't, when Fox and Friends isn't, you know, on, um, sometimes they're policy, sometimes they're not. I don't think we've found a way of sort of decoding which we don't take seriously and which we do because, you know, a comment like, um, uh, a comment like uh, the, the ones that Trump has made on Kim Jong-un, they have real-world consequences in the psychology of North Korea's behavior. Even if Jim Mattis and and Mike Pompeo and, and Rex Tillerson and McMaster are all counteracting it furiously, which one is which one's Kim Jong Un going to take more seriously? Well, the, 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 but I think where the break occurs is somewhere between outrageous statements and actual implementation of policies. Rosa, I mean, aren't aren't you aren't we starting to see a pattern here where we, world leaders might be able to discount a bit of what Trump says because he either doesn't follow through or can't follow through? I I do think that that's to some extent happening, but I don't think that either I or or anyone is is yet confident about that, right? I I think that the world would be a a marginally more stable place if everyone felt completely confident that Trump's excesses would, of course, be reined in uh, and that his his more uh, erratic uh, impulses would would not amount to anything. And I think that on the one hand, and we, we, we certainly have seen that Usually, his uh, bark is worse than his bite when it comes to policy making. At least in the foreign policy arena, his domestic policy has been pretty darn bitey. Um, but but I don't think anybody can sit back and sort of say, okay, so now we don't need to worry when he makes uh, bellicose noises towards North Korea and so on. You know, and 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 I also think you know there's a there's a more complicated set of issues here which I'm really ambivalent about, which which has to do with um, the deep state, right, and, and military, civil military relations. Um, in the near term, I think, of course, we all feel, we all breathe a sigh of relief if we think that, you know, somebody like Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis is going to be the guy making the decisions, not Donald Trump at the end of the day. Um, on the other hand, in terms of the the long-term legacy for American democracy of uh, having a sort of quiet, tacit conspiracy cheered on by all of us and by the media and by many of the many members of the American public, a sort of quiet conspiracy to make sure that the president cannot actually do what he says he wants to do. That's that's a little worrisome in some other ways, longer term. It may be, but 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 Corey, you know, isn't isn't the end of the Trump story very likely? to involve a bit of a happy ending regarding the effectiveness of the deep state? I do think the best, um, the best succinct commentary on the Trump administration continues to have been that which Ben Wittes offered 
uh, nine months or so ago, which is their malevolence is being outrun by their incompetence. And where you do see departments that are running competently and efficiently, the Defense Department premier among them, uh, but also the NSC staff that wrote the national security strategy, those activities are either divorced from the president's own actions or uh, engaged in an effort to corral and constrain the president's actions. So yeah, David, the, the good news is that despite uh, us Americans electing someone dangerous and reckless to be president, that, that we should be thankful to the founding fathers to have built a government that, that is inefficient. And that, you know, the whole purpose of checks and balances is to make sure very little can be done by our federal government without having built a broad political consensus. And that's the president's fundamental task. And he's failing at it um, in an outsized way. Not only is he not building a broad public political consensus to enable the acts that he wants, um, right, like the the president's main power is the bully pulpit to organize political support and impose that political support on Congress in the form of a legislative agenda. But every time he talks to members of Congress, he manages to say something so offensive that it ruins the possibility of cross-line consensus, which leads me to what I think is likely to be a happy ending, which is the president being voted out of office. Because I think I see um, the incentives for uh, crossing the line politically, I see that uh, uh, increasing on both the Democratic and the Republican side. I was, I was surprised to see, for example, that uh, Governor Kasich, Republican governor of Ohio, is playing footsies with the Democratic governor of Colorado as a potential uh, primary challenge to a sitting Republican president. Well, I, you know, some people will say that that's good news. That some of us, when you hear voted out of office, think we have to wait that long. But yeah, I'm sympathetic. It's called to that, the democratic also- process, David. I, I I realize it's a shock, but well, there, there there are a lot of processes within democracy, and elections aren't the only process. Um, and uh, some of those checks and balances have uh, measures that we could take betwixt and between. Well, you know, enough of this optimism. You know, everybody out there who listens to this show on a regular basis um, has you know, I'm sure tuned in this week in a hope for a vigorous discussion about shitholes because they know that of all the shows that are out there talking about this, we are the ones that would call a shithole a shithole before um, others and have no qualms about use of a term like shithole or as the White House seems to be weirdly trying to spin it towards shit house, which I don't really know uh, whether that's uh, better or not. Yeah. It's, it's above ground. A house is above, totally ground, above ground and, and a hole is and, below but, ground. But, but it does get us to another point, which is while we may have some checks in the U.S. government, while there may be some parts that are not following through on the worst parts of what the president does, his words do have big consequences when the African Union or 54 countries say, you know, we are offended, take it back. 
and the reaction worldwide to his most recent outburst has been really stunning, including, uh, and I'm going to extend the thanks to Ed on behalf of, you know, for, to who represents his entire country to us, <laughs> a senior British MP who called Trump a racist asteroid of awfulness. <laughs> this is why Corey is moving to Britain because she she be likes the, alli the alliteration issues really sort of it's also, it's also optimistic an asteroid you know implies he's not from us he comes from elsewhere <laughs> uh, that's that's I think, Tiara I think actually worthy. what he was implying was that the asteroid was on a collision course it, with the that's Earth. another way of looking at it but, you know, see the glass half full here but but we do have these outbursts which do have their consequences, and I think the listeners want to know what we think those consequences may be, David. Well, um, I think that the main consequence here is that whether he took it back, which he has no intention of doing, whether he argues that it was house instead of whole, uh, which doesn't seem to me to make a big difference – the fundamental issue is a year into this presidency, we're just about at January 20th. Uh, I think that both our allies and our adversaries have a pretty good idea now of exactly who they're dealing with, what his instincts are. And you see that repeatedly in these discussions of immigration. A few weeks ago, uh, our uh, my Times colleagues reported that when Haiti also came up, he said or was reported to have said the White House denied it uh, that, you know, why do we want to let people come in from there? They've all got AIDS. It also tells you a little bit about his short historical memory here. Um, his grandfather came from Germany when Germany was not exactly um, regarded as uh, a fabulous place to go live. America has always been built by immigrants who came from countries that were highly dysfunctional and the issue has always been whether or not those immigrants put in a better environment would end up making great contributions to American society as they almost always have or a good proportion of them have. And so – it reveals not only a, a sense of, of bias here, which has been much discussed, but a complete absence of a sense of American history about what role immigration has played. And of course, you know, we're playing out again something you've seen strains of in American history for uh, decades, if not two centuries, whether it was the wave of Chinese immigration to build the Transcontinental Railroad or waves of Irish uh, immigration or Russian and Russian-Jewish immigration, Italian immigration. There's nothing new here. We have seen this completely before. The only thing that's new is that uh, the president's words seem to be taking us back many a decade. And for Haitians, it's particularly um, particularly not new. I, many years ago as an undergraduate, read a, read a famous – uh, a, a book in academic circles at any rate famous, uh, which I'm sure Corey will have heard of, called uh, Black Jacobins, which was about the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s, the slave rebellion um, that was inspired by both the, the American Revolution and the French Revolution and adopted those principles, Enlightenment principles for a slave 
country to overthrow um, its masters. All the white powers, um, if you like, from the revolutionary ones such as France and the United States to the um, to the more reactionary ones of the time, such as Britain, colluded to basically suppress this slave, slave rebellion. So, you know, if you're Haitian and, and you have sort of a grasp of your history, being called a shithouse by um, by President Trump is actually there's a bit of continuity there. Uh, they, they've they've got history. Well, they've got history. They've also got remarkable people. During the Clinton administration, for a while, I had the uh, actual privilege of of serving as the Haiti economic recovery coordinator uh, post our invasion there and spent a lot of time in Haiti with these remarkable people who often were struggling against uh, great odds, but um, who did so with a great deal of spirit and who contributed an enormous amount to the United States. But there's another dimension of this, and that is that many of the people who come from these countries um, are extremely well-educated people. I think the percentage of African uh, immigrants to the United States who have college degrees is higher than the percentage of Americans who have hot college degrees. Uh, and this gets us to the core of the Trump argument, which is, I think, Rosa, that shithole was not really the issue or shithouse was not the issue, <clears throat> but that, in fact, uh, the the racist part of his statement was the use of the term Norway. Uh, now, there's <laughs> right. nothing there's nothing that wrong with Norway as a country. In fact, I like Norway a lot. But the idea that he said these countries, which are black and brown countries, um, shouldn't be allowed in. But on a merit-based system, we should allow in this white country was where it became racist. And you know, there were, the only distinction between Norway and these other countries and that you could draw would be cultural or racial. And that's that's where it gets racist. And that's really the problem here. It's 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 that he reflexively thinks that that whiter, richer countries are are better than the other ones, isn't it? Sure. No, absolutely. And and uh, look look no further than his own family tree. Donald Trump's mother came to the United States in 1930. She was Scottish, which which I will note is a largely white country. She was Scottish. Uh, she was 18 years old. She was an unskilled laborer. She was cleaning houses. Uh, and she came to the United States to live with her sister in Queens, in New York. Her sister had already emigrated to the U.S. She, she had, you know, she obviously, she was not a brain surgeon. She was not, she was not a concert pianist or something. Um, you know, she was, the one thing she had going for her, and obviously um, we're a little sorry that all this happened because it gave us Donald Trump, was that, that she was white. She was a white person from a white country. Uh, and she got here because she had a sister who was here. Chain, chain, mi chain migration, the very thing that Trump has been uh, uh, complaining about, the, the horror of the fact that people are people who come to the U.S. lawfully are, are able to allow, get their family members to come and join them. His grandfather also came to the United States as an immigrant who spoke almost no English and had no skills. He was 16 years old. He came here in 1885. He came to join uh, his older sister, who was already here. Uh, so, you know, had it not been for chain migration from from white countries such as Scotland and Germany, we wouldn't have Donald Trump. But obviously, from Trump's perspective, these were these were fine, because even though these involved completely unskilled people coming to the United States, uh, they were they were from white countries. I do think it's important to say just to add an additional point to this, though, 
you know, one of the things, of course, that's so offensive about Trump's remarks is the suggestion that people from, quote unquote, shithole countries uh, like Haiti, El Salvador, Africa can't possibly make contributions to the United States. And, and as, as you've said, um, the, the opposite has, has been true. Um, but I also think, you know, one of the great struggles in American immigration policy has been to say, you know, maybe it's not just about what these immigrants can do for us. Uh, maybe this should also right. be about what obligations we as the United States have towards to help people from countries who, who for whatever the reason, uh, are going through a terribly difficult time creating real humanitarian disasters for people, whether it's uh, natural disasters, earthquakes and so forth in a place like Haiti, or whether or whether it's political catastrophe, also at various points in time in Haiti and El Salvador, et cetera, you know, that we're not just saying, yes, it's okay to come to the United States because maybe you'll become a brain surgeon uh, or maybe you'll get really, really rich. We're saying it's okay to come to the United States because you're human beings. You're human beings and we as your fellow human beings feel a sense of kinship with you. And whether or not you end up becoming rich and famous, we, we, we want to extend a helping hand to other humans who are going through a tough time. And, and I would hate to see us as a nation let go of that, although that's certainly what the Trump administration is doing. Three cheers, Rosa. Uh, I totally agree. It's a powerful point. And it brings up, you know, a, a, a fact that, you know, the fact that I think we've established, you know, that Donald Trump is a racist. And the New York Times had a wonderful piece. We're recording this on Monday in today's uh, um, paper uh, that really supports this with a lot of detail. The fact that we've established that, that's one problem. Uh, another problem is that Donald Trump seems to uh, inform his racism with a view of U.S. foreign policy, which is almost exclusively what's in it for us, uh, and very, very narrowly defined at that. And it is not at all what are our responsibilities as the richest, most powerful country in the world, what are our ethical and moral obligations as human beings. Uh, and even, you know, to go two steps beyond those things, how does behaving in an ethical and moral way benefit us as a country? Um, but, Corey, you know, as, oh, I, me, oh, me. Yeah, as I turn to you on this, we end up at a place where there is no doubt at this point that the president of the United States is a racist. Does that matter? Absolutely, it matters. So thing one Donald Trump is a racist. This has been evident for a long period of time. It's not a newsflash. Um, and, and we need to look that square in the face. Thing two, there's a really wonderful book written by Noel Ignatev. Oh, wow, 15 years ago now, at least, called How the Irish Became White. And it's a book of sociology. It looks at the way... Um, Irish immigrants to the United States who were at the time of their immigration during the Great Famine considered of equal stature, equal intelligence, equal education, equal danger to the broad body politic to newly freed slaves uh, in the United States and how they cultivated a change in their social stature by opening banks that loaned money to them by uh, taking public service jobs so that people saw them in a different light. It's really important to understand how much 
the ugly racism that is a spectrum of skin color is a social creation in the United States. And the third thing is that the president is burning through in very rapid order um, the, the magnetism of America in the world that has made talented people want to come here, that has reduced the cost of everything we're trying to do in the world because the, the international order the United States created in particular after 1945 has been an international order where our power is not all we are doing, but that we stand for something bigger and better than American military power or economic prowess in the world. And President Trump is doing enormous damage to that, that is driving up the cost of everything the United States is trying to do in the world. Well, that's our TR of optimism holder, folks. Um, and, <laughs> but, and, you know, and, the, the most important thing about, I agree with everything that Corey said, I, I recognizing that not many of President Trump's supporters are deep enthusiasts of listening to deep state radio, although I assume they're probably a couple. Um, they would buy almost none of that, Corey. They would say you have just given perfect expression to what's created the problem that created the backlash that created Donald Trump. Well, I <laughs> believe that uh, I believe that David, and yet the rest of us have to organize and work cooperatively because the people whose hearts are indeed that much hardened to uh, the truths we hold to be self-evident are a minority in this country and we need to inoculate our body politic against them playing the dominant role. And indeed, you know, there seems to be a discussion and I think it's part of the aftershock of Trump actually being elected where on a regular basis people say there is this group that holds these views as though those views should be respected. And those views, the racism, the intolerance, I, I got that, David. It's not a question of whether it should be respected. It's a question of how do you address it and begin to persuade people that, in fact, immigrants have made a huge contribution here. And because we've had these waves of history, a very virulent anti-immigrant feeling of which we seem to be going through one right now, they've come and they've gone. And it's worth looking at the question of what vanquished them even if it only got vanquished temporarily. Well, and I, but I, again, if we look at the polling data, uh, there is a lot of support for immigrants and particular immigrant groups, and there is uh, a minority view um, that is the extreme anti-immigrant view that is offered up by Trump. But you know, I, 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 what I was going to say was that while Corey's view may not sound optimistic, it is optimistic because it. Uh, retains a belief in the best of America, in the resilience of America, in the uh, leadership that it, we anticipate will emerge to uh, subdue these particular views. Um, and I think that's a good place to end. We're recording this uh, episode uh, on Martin Luther King Day. 
Uh, it was a day that began disturbingly with the president of the United States' assertion that he's not a racist, although everyone knows better. Uh, but if it is a day that's true to the spirit of Martin Luther King, uh, then it is one that should be suffused with, with hope, uh, because his was a message that we can change and we can change for the better. Um, and uh, this is a moment when we definitely need to change. Uh, we'll do our part in future episodes of Deep State Radio, talking about ways we can do that. And we hope you will join us for those future episodes. Uh, thank you to David and to Ed and to Rosa and to Corey. Come back soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.